Ephesians chapter 2. By way of reminder, it's been a few weeks since we've gone through the book of Ephesians. Uh, So by way of reminder, remember that the theme of the book of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace, walking in the riches of God's grace. And and if we're going to walk in the riches of God's grace, we first need to understand what God has given us in His grace. And and so Paul explained in chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings because we're in Christ. And we spend all of chapter 1 looking at those blessings, you know, going one by one through each of them. And then toward the end, you know, we concluded with this prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians that they would, his desire was that they would be granted the four things. Number one, that they would be granted the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. In other words, as they were reading the Word and hearing the Word, that they would understand what it meant and they'd be able to apply it correctly to their lives. And then he prayed that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would know three things. Number one, what is the hope of his calling? They would understand that every one of them was brought into the family of God and has a purpose in the family of God. If you're saved here, we need you. You're a part of the body of Christ. You're important. You're crucial. You have a function. You have a purpose. The second thing that he says that your eyes being enlightened that you would know is what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that we would understand the wealth God considers it that we are his. Uh, I, I would not label me that way or you that way, but he does. That's how he values us, and, and therefore we need to understand the great worth he places upon us. Not that we're worthy of it, but that he places upon us. And then the third thing that they would, their eyes of their understanding being enlightened, that they would know what is the, the exceeding greatness of His power that's directed towards us, the same power that was in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and then sat Him down at His own right hand. That same power is directed towards us. And so that last part of that prayer, that resurrection power that is available to us, it mentions that that same uh, power God used is directed to each and every one of us every day. And so now when we get to chapter 2, it's in light of that idea that Paul is going to show us how God has actually already exercised that same resurrection power to raise us up from the dead and to seat us in heavenly places too. Now, that of course, though, brings up the question, why did we need to be raised up from the dead? Aren't we already alive? Like, if I'm already alive, why do I need to be raised up from the dead? And so, by answering that question, Paul's going to show us the horrible depths that God rescued us from, the horrible death that God rescued us from through Christ. So, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I know it's a lot to cover, but we will do our best. Verse 1 says, "...and you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins." Wherein, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." We start off here with this phrase in verse 1, end you, which means should be translated, you also. So the you also connects it to the end of chapter 1, just as Jesus was dead at one point and was raised up and then seated in a place of honor next to the Father. 
we also were dead in trespasses and sins. If you'll notice I skipped, has he quickened? It's because it's in italics in your Bible, if it's there, which means it's not in the original text. Now, the reason the translators put it here is because it connects with verse 5, which is Paul's main thought that we will get to, not this week, but next week. And so they put it there because it almost seems a little out of place. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, okay, what's the end for? It, so when it says, and you, has he quickened? Just like he raised Jesus up, he made us alive, and then it explains why, because we were dead in trespasses and sins. So just as Jesus died, but by God's mighty power, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and was seated at God's right hand. We also were raised from the dead and seated into a place of honor by God's power. So they put it there to make it a little bit more connecting. Whether it should be there or not, I'll leave that to your opinion, whatever. The point is, you also were dead in trespasses and sins. Not that Jesus was dead in trespasses and sins, but we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he says, who were? The rest of Paul's teaching about who we are now that we're in Christ, he has to go backwards because that will become clearer, much clearer, when we understand who we were before we were in Christ. Does that make sense? When Paul says, hey, you're blessed with all spiritual blessings, let me list out a bunch of them. But before he gets to the next ones he's going to start listing out, he says, I need to go backwards a bit first. I need to tell you what you were before you were in Christ, so these blessings that you now have in Christ will make a greater sense. They will make more sense to you. So, who were we before we were in Christ? Well, it tells us we were dead. Now, I was physically alive, so death here cannot refer to physically dead. It refers to spiritual death. Now, way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we already understand that this is what happens happened when we sinned. When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden by God, blessed with everything there, he said, listen, he says, you can enjoy everything in this garden. You've got one opportunity to reject me, and it's this one tree, this one tree. People, if God was good, why did he put a tree in the garden? I would say, God shows he's good. He only put one. I mean, think about it, you know? I mean, how many, how many you know, booby traps are laid for you, you know, when you're, you're go, you, have, you go through your work day every day? You know, whether it's by coworkers or your clients or your boss or whatever, you got all sorts of things laid out for you. But God loved us so much, he said, you can enjoy everything here, and I'm just going to give you one opportunity to fail, one opportunity to reject me and disobey. That's how, that's how good he is. So anyway, the idea here of being spiritually dead when we sin was back then. When God told them that, he said, because in the day of you eat, you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of it, you shall, the Hebrew, the English says, you shall surely die. In Hebrew, it says, having died, you shall begin to die. In other words, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they did not physically die immediately. They did begin to physically die. But something died immediately, their spirits. They were spiritually dead the moment they ate of that fruit. And so we see the difference in their relationship with God after they did that. In Genesis 3-7, it mentions that after they ate of the fruit and they heard God walking in the garden, what'd they do? It says they hid and they realized they were naked, so they covered themselves up with fig leaves. And so we see a change in their relationship to God. 
So that gives us some clues into what it means to be spiritually dead. Now, physical death, is we describe that uh, as the separation of the spirit and the soul from the body. When someone dies physically, their body remains, but their soul and their spirit is gone. And so we would say they're not there anymore. You know, the, the body that housed them is no longer the body that houses them. They have, you know, they have moved on. And so um, that's physical death. So that means that spiritual death is defined as the separation of your spirit and soul from God. That's spiritual death. Now, to live a life separated from God, what is that? Well, it is a life that is destitute of the recognition that God deserves, number one. It's, a, it's, it's, it's destitute of a recognition of, of, of God's rightful place in my life. So I, I lose that relationship with the Lord. Secondly, it's destitute of a devotion to God. No longer am I devoted to God. Adam and Eve, they loved walking with God in the cool of the garden of the day. Now what are they doing? They're hiding, right? They're avoiding God. So, so they, they lost two things when they spiritually died. They became destitute of a life that recognized God's place in their life because they covered up their sin rather than bringing it to the Lord. And they were destitute of a life that was devoted to God because they hid from him. They no longer were seeking him out. So, of course, we can look at Adam and Eve, and we can see what they did, and we can go, oh, why'd you do that? But the reality is, all of us have repeated their decision in one way or another. You know, when Adam and Eve were confronted with their sin by the Lord, they first tried to hide it from God, and then they passed the buck and made excuses. The Lord confronts Adam, he says, Adam, what have you done? Now, Adam, God didn't need to know, like, God wasn't going, what's going on here? The garden just looks different, you know? <laughs> he knew what had happened. He was giving Adam an opportunity to turn back to the Lord, to repent and to confess his sin and to be restored. Instead, Adam goes, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, Eve, the wife you gave me, I and mean, this is really your fault and her fault. She's a trickster, man. You know, I, 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 hey, this apple, Adam, doesn't it look great? I, I'm supposed to trust her, aren't I? It's not my fault. It's your fault and her fault. And then, okay, Eve, what's your story? Oh, I mean, you made the snake. I mean, and he's, man, you think I'm a trickster? This dude's an outright deceiver, you know? He's, I mean, he's just evil to the core. So it's your fault and his fault. They did not own their own sin. And so there was no reaching forth for God to have the proper place in their lives anymore. There was no reaching forth to have a relationship with God. It was no longer something they were devoted to. Now, this is, by the way, why the Scripture states that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the starting point to turning around from spiritual death is to recognize the Lord's place and to give him that respect that he deserves. And then number two, I'm going to it's a decision to listen to what he says rather than what I think. Now, so we come here, we've done the same exact thing, and, and so as a result, we're dead. 
Now, since we were destitute of a life that recognizes God because of spiritual death, because of the choice we made, we're destitute of a life that's devoted to God, that those things have to be filled. Those holes have to be filled with something else. So that means we now gave recognition to something else, and we devoted our lives to something else. So we were not just dead, but we were dead, it tells us, in or with reference to trespasses and sins, or more literally in the original language, the trespasses and the sins. You know, you, who, who are you going for in the playoffs this year? Well, I'm going for the, you know, whatever, the Bills, the Bucks, whoever, you can name them. Who are you devoted, what is my life devoted to when I'm spiritually dead? The trespasses and the sins. That's what we are devoted to. That is what we are giving recognition in our lives to now. So, what are the trespasses? Well, the trespasses are the things that deviate from the right path. It means to, the word trespass means to cross an established line. Um, I love the little guys, like the little kids. They're like my favorite. Like, you know, one of my favorite things is going into the classroom and just getting on the floor because you get down to their level and they are just happy as all can be. They may not even know your name, but they're happy as all can be. Like, dude's down here with us. We can get this guy. No, I'm just kidding. No, no we, this could be fun, you know? He's, he's right here with us, you know, instead of up there. But inevitably, in every group, when if I'm babysitting kids or something like that, every group, there's always one that's looking at you and thinking, I can take him. I don't care if he's five feet tall than me, I can take him, you know? And so, you know, you have those moments within the, the, the dynamic of the babysitting experience where you're like, oh, no, 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 we don't go in that room, or no, 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 we don't, we don't do that, we don't touch that, or we don't, you know, we don't juggle the lamp, you know, we don't do that, you know? And, and, and there's always the one who's going, oh, yeah, I am, you know? And, and you, you got to keep your eye on that one. But that idea is, this is not a child who's just like, oh, I wasn't supposed to play with that. You know, this is a child who's going, I know I'm not, and I'm going to, you know. That's what a trespass is. That's a trespass. Don't touch that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's trespass, you know. The sins, this word comes from a Greek word that describes a spearman who misses the target he was aiming his spear at. In other words, he's aiming at, you know, I'm aiming at the, the hay dummy over there, you know, that, that is supposed to be the enemy soldier. I'm practicing and I aim for him, and instead I hit the guy over there who's keeping score with the sign, you know? You know, you know my brother-in-law, I didn't like him anyway. You know, no, I was aiming for the target and hit that guy over there. That was not the goal. You missed the mark. It means to shoot for a target but fail to hit it. So that means before we were in Christ, we were devoted to two things. Number one, pursuing what we wanted, even if it meant crossing the line of God's standards. We were devoted to that. Pursuing what we wanted, even if it meant crossing the line of God's standard. And then number two, here's the kicker. We also pursued goodness, but failed to hit it. So we were pursuing what we wanted, even if it meant crossing the line of God's standard. And number two, we pursued goodness but failed to hit it. Which means we thought we were good and even attempted to be good in our own way, while at the same time doing whatever we wanted when we really wanted it, regardless of what God said. That's how Paul describes our lives before we came to Christ. And while that description is not flattering at all, doesn't it accurately describe who you were before you were in Christ? Man, when I read scriptures like this, it is almost chilling to think of how accurate it is for me. 
I, I grew up in, uh, you know, in, a, in a, what I would consider to be a religious home. Uh, my dad was not a believer. My mom was saved. Uh, but because of her influence, um, you know, we, we learned about Jesus. We learned about God. I, I went to, we went to uh, a Catholic church. I went to Catholic school. Um, you know, the, uh, the nuns, I knew them very well. My knuckles also knew them very well. Um, you know, th- that was my experience. I-, I was not ignorant of God. I was not ignorant of the idea of the Bible. I was not ignorant of ideas of, of goodness, of what God's standard was about, you know, what-, what he says, this is how a person should act and live, you know? And so I, I grew up with the idea of, well, I'm a good person trying to do good things for the most part, uh, but at the same time, pursued whatever I wanted, even if it meant crossing some of those lines. That, that's eerie when I think about the Bible describing this. It's almost like there's a God out there who knows me better than I know myself. You know, in a recent true crime documentary on the BTK serial killer, Dennis Rader, Dennis Rader was asked if he saw himself as a monster. He answered, and I quote, at times, but I also think of myself as a good person who did some bad things. Now, what's shocking isn't that this serial killer still thinks he's a good person. What's shocking is that we have all made that type of statement. Do you think you're a bad person? At times, but I also think of myself as a good person who does some bad things. That statement about ourselves, we've all either said it or thought it about ourselves at one point. And we thought, we believed we were being logical and reasonable when we had that. What is truly shocking is that any of us thinks we're good people. That's what's really shocking. Not that this guy still thinks he's a good person, that any of us think it. Now, we sang that song, when Satan tempts me to despair, you know, and, and uh, you know, brings up, talks about the guilt, you know, that I have. You know, I look up where I look and see him there, you know, who paid the debt for all my sin, you know. We're not supposed to dwell on our sinfulness and how wicked we were and whatever. We're not supposed to dwell upon that. But it is important to remember who we were before Christ. Because if we don't, we may forget to show mercy to those who aren't in Christ yet. We can begin to think somehow that we're actually better than others. When the truth is, all we have been given to us, all that has been given to us is by grace because we were in a very bad spot. A very bad spot. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, wherein this life devoted to the trespasses and to the sins. Instead of to the Lord, this life devoted to the trespasses and sins. Instead of recognizing the Lord, we recognized, gave recognition and priority in our life to the trespasses and the sins. In that life, in time past, at some point, you walked. You, all of us. The word ye there, it means all y'all, you know. That's what it means. It's a plural form of the second person, so it's all of you, all of us. Everyone's included in this. All of us walked, which means to conduct our life or to regulate our behavior. It says according to or under the control or the influence or in accordance with two other groups. So not only did we devote our life to these things, but we went along with another two other groups that were moving in that direction. Number one, it says according to the course of this world. Uh, The phrase course means the spirit of the current age. 
the word world means the overarching view of history. So in other words, you've, you've got, in the word for world, you've got the long view of history, every time period, in all of history, from beginning to end. And then with that first word, spirit of the age, uh, that means refers to the specific different time periods that have been in history. So in other words, all of us conducted our lives or ordered our behavior in accordance with or under the influence of or moving in the same direction of every time period of all of history. Now, while every time period of history could be described by varying or different dominant thoughts or opinions, hopes, impulses, aims, or aspirations, every time period of history has this in common. It's embraced a mindset of rebellion against God. Oh, some time periods in history looked more moral or more immoral than others, but at the heart of every time period is this general anti-God mindset that, number one, pursues what I want, even if it means crossing God's established boundaries, while right alongside this other anti-God mindset that believes I'm a generally good person trying to do good things even though I frequently fail, up to, uh, fail to live up to that standard. Oftentimes when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, you know, and, and I'll say, but listen, well, do, you, you know, do you think you're a good person? And, and they say, well, yeah, 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 you know, and, and I'll, I'll say, you know, well, you know, they'll say everybody sins, you know, but, but you know, generally, I, you know, I think I'm a good person. I say, well, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you think a good person is, you know? Well, I say, well, you know, you, know, you just got to love people. You just got to love, love others, you know? And so, oh, that, okay, well, do you love others? Well, yeah, I think, I think I do a pretty good job. Okay, well, you know, like mom and dad, do you love mom? I don't talk to my dad. Why don't you talk to your dad? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. You know, he's this, that, and the other. Every time I try to talk to him, oh, okay. All right, well, what about like siblings? Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I don't talk to them either. Okay, well, what, like, okay, well, let's drop the family thing. Families can be complicated. Like, what about work? You know, do you get along with your boss? You know, I hate my boss. Okay, well, what about your coworkers? You know, I've got to go, well, I got my one that works next in the cubicle to me. Okay, so you love all your coworkers. Well, not all of them. I mean, Bob's a jerk, you know? And you start going through and you're like, okay, so, but you think you're loving. Well, it says you're you know, just supposed to be kind to people. Were, were you kind to everybody? We don't even live up to our own standards. Now let's go to God's standards. You know, have you always loved God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Have you ever had an idol in your life? You know, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever, you know, have you always honored your father and mother? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked upon a man or a woman with lust in your heart? Because Jesus says that's the same as committing adultery. Have you ever coveted what someone else has? Man, we're, we're in trouble. We don't even live up to our own flimsy standards of what it means to be good, let alone God's righteous and holy standard. And that is all humanity of all time. And none of us, none of us looked out at that and said, not me. None of us. None of us said, no, I will, that's foolishness. I will not do that, you know. I am not a good person, and I, none of us did that. And it's why when you talk to people, even sometimes when you talk to people who have been in church their entire life, and you ask them the question, you say, how does a person get to heaven? They answer it by saying, even though they've been taught the gospel for years, they will say, well, you know, you just try your best to be a good person. It's the spirit of the age that's existed in the course of all history since the fall. 
And until I repent of that, <laughs> until I repent of that, it doesn't matter how many times somebody tells me, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're never going to turn and you're never going to get it. Now again, lest we think to ourselves, yep, we're in one of those time periods right now. Everybody thinks they're good when we don't even live up to our own standards. Our lives are walking contradictions and we don't care what God says. Lest we be tempted to think that that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is that at some point in our lives, every single one of us regulated our behavior with the same mindset. Paul's point isn't that someone else lives like this, but that I pursued what I wanted even if it meant I had to cross God's established boundaries. And all the while, I still considered myself a good person trying to do good things, even though I frequently failed to hit that target. I did the same thing that Satan offered Adam and Eve in the garden. The day you eat of this, you'll be like God. Like every other person in humanity, I made myself out to be my own God. I set up my own standards, and I displaced the loving God who made me. Now, we weren't the first people to do that. We were also not just following the spirit of the age in every period of history, but we also were following someone else who did it before any human being did it, Satan himself. And thus, is it any wonder that Paul next says that we also lived our lives at some point in accordance with Satan? He says also we lived, we were dedicated to the trespasses and sins. We conducted our lives. We ordered our lives according to or under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. The word prince, it just means the, the leader of the ruler, the first, you know, in an order of uh, persons or things, you know. Uh, the word here for power is a word that's uh, to describe the fallen angels or spirits who oppose God. So he's, he's the first of the order of the fallen angels. That's what the prince of the power means. His area of influence is, the Bible says, the air. The word air here, it means the lower atmosphere of the earth. Um, you know, if you're flying at 30,000 feet, the devil's not there. Just kidding. No. Um, but the word here, just, it describes the air of everyday life, you know, the air of human life, you know. It's not that he can't get you up on a plane. Trust me, I've been on one. He gets me plenty of times. So, you know, the person next to me, you know, I'm always, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> anyway, it's easy to get irritated when someone's elbows don't stay where they're supposed to stay, you know. I had one time I was flying back uh, from Israel, this kid behind me, you know, he just puts his legs up through the thing and right on my, my chair, right on top of my legs. And I'm like, this is an 11-hour fight, bro. Well, fight, bro. We're going we're gonna to fight, you know. <laughs> you know, anyway, uh, confession time. But, uh, you know, he's up there too. But the point is, is where, where everyday life is, is, is this word is describing. Um, you know, he's involved in the world's activities. Uh, Jesus used the same terminology when he uh, describes Satan. He calls him the prince of this world. Uh, three times in the book of John, we see this phrase used. Uh, in John 12, 31, you can write the references down and look them up later if you'd like. John 12, 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Uh, in John 14, 30, John 14, 30 says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes, uh, but he has nothing in me. 
In John 16, 11, when he's describing the work of the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit will convict of, convince of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So the idea is that Satan is the one who presides over humanity's history-long alienation from God. You know, he presides over that. He, so because of that, our mindset resembles his own mindset. And what was his mindset? Well, we are given a glimpse of it in Isaiah chapter 14. The prophet Isaiah references the fall of Satan uh, in Isaiah 14 before any human being ever fell. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. Isaiah 14, verse 12, he says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? That was his given name by the Lord. Now he's Satan, which means the adversary, you know, the, the uh, diabolos, the devil. He is, he is you know, the, the, um, the liar, you know, the, the slanderer. You know, that's, that's the name he took on uh, because of, of his fall when he decided to rebel against the Lord and do his own thing. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. You know, these verses describe the enemy of our souls when he rebelled against the Lord. This is what he was thinking. But we have to note, if you go back to verse 4 of Isaiah 14, this prophecy or this sermon that Isaiah is giving is speaking to a future king of Babylon. He says, thus shall you take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So in other words, he's describing the mindset of the king of Babylon in this sermon, and he goes, you know who you're just like? You're just like your forebear, you know? You're just like the devil, you know? So, you know, it's interesting because Isaiah's writing to a king who doesn't exist yet, probably King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and, and describing that you're going to have the, the heart of the, of the devil. You're going to have the mindset of the devil. You're not going to be anything new. I, I always chuckle, you know, because when I was in, I went to UCF for two years, got my A, transferred out to Bible college, got my bachelor's there. My, you know, in two years at, at, at UCF, you know, at that age group, you know, you kind of have the mindset of, you know, I, I'm free of the shackles of, you know, of regular school, free of the shackles of, you know, mom and dad, whatever, and I'm my own person. I'm thinking independently. We had a biology teacher, uh, a lecturer, you know, uh, 400, you know, students in a lecture hall, whatever, and, and I loved him because he always had the weirdest topics he'd talk about. And one of the topics he brought up is just, you know, what's the best kind of medication, you know, everyday medication? Is it, you know, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, or aspirin? Uh, and I may have messed all that up, but th that was what I remember. And from those, like, two weeks of lectures to this day, if I have a headache or something and somebody offers me something, if it's not ibuprofen, I'm not taking it. Because I'm so independent thinking, you know, in my thinking. The whole group of 400 people, you know, whoever this guy was talking to, you know, for, I'm 47 years old and I still will only take ibuprofen. Because we're not independent. We think we're independent. We're going to express it by our dress or by our speech or how we do things now. But the reality is, that's the most influential time of our lives. 
And more often than not, the things that are implanted in our hearts and minds at that age is, tend to affect a lot of the decisions we make moving forward. And so while this mindset might be obvious, you know, that he has the mind of Satan and a man like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, who looks out at Babylon in Daniel chapter, I think it's uh, three or four, I think it's three, and he, and he said, oh, you know, who has made this great Babylon? And, you know, and you're like, really, dude? You think you're all that? Well, he's, he's not that far from the rest of us is what the reality of, that Paul's trying to convey here. While it might be obvious in a man like Nebuchadnezzar or other obviously evil men in history, this is a mindset that Satan has injected into the hearts and minds of every human being. For it says that it is the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. The word spirit here means it's the way of thinking, it's the attitude, it's the disposition. It says that is working right now, presently. Every present that's, you know, every now that's now, our now, this attitude, this way of thinking is working in the children of disobedience. It's working in unbelievers everywhere. That's what that term, children of disobedience, it's a phrase used in the Old Testament frequently, sons of Belial, sons of disobedience, you know. It's a term for anyone who doesn't, who's not walking with the Lord, who, you know, refuses to believe the gospel. It, it means belonging to disobedience like a child would to its parents, you know, like, you know, when, 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 uh, you know, when we had our children in the hospital, you know, and, and they did not bring them to someone else. They brought them to us. They said, you have to take them home. And we said, can we stay a little bit longer? <laughs> you know, because you know, if you ever had that first child and you get home and you're like, you know, when does the nurse come, you know? Oh, they don't. Wow, this is rough. <laughs> when do I get to sleep? You don't. They are my kids. They belong to me. And so when the phrase a child or a son of disobedience, it means they belong to disobedience in the same way. You may have repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, but there are many who haven't. And every single one of those individuals, whether they think so or are aware of it or not, they're living under the influence of Satan's rebellious mindset, and they're living under the influence of the rebellious mindset that the world has had at every stage of humanity. Now again, lest we think to ourselves, yep, that's how it is now. I see it out there. I see the devil's influence. I see the world's influence. And our unbelievers are running with it. Lest we develop that mindset or we think to ourselves to blame the devil or the world, Paul reminds us that this is who we all were at one point and that all of us chose for it to be that way. Look at verse three. Among whom also we all, no exceptions, among whom also, among the unbelievers, those who are under the influence of Satan in the world, we also all had our conversation. We all conducted our lives at some point, in times past, at some point, in the lusts of our flesh. No one is exempt from this. None of us came to Christ because we were better than somebody else. All of us who are in Christ now at some point chose to be children of disobedience. And we conducted, regulated our lives. It says, in the lust of the flesh. The word phrase, lust of the flesh, it means to strongly desire to engage in an activity that is morally wrong. 
At some point in our lives, every single one of us longed for things that are outside the boundaries God set for us. And then the, the verse goes on to say, at, then at some point, every single one of us acted on those longings. For it says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Fulfilling means doing, carrying out, accomplishing. We went from longing for, uh, we carried out then those desires, those wishes or those wants that were of the flesh and that were of our mind, which means our purposes or our plans. So we longed for something that's outside God's boundaries. We then made plans to do those things, and then we went and did those things. Every single one of us at some point in our life had that mindset. And because we all at one point longed for things that are outside God's set boundaries and made plans about how to act on those longings and then acted on those longings and plans, the Scriptures say with clarity and consistency that none of us are good. None of us are good. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, all of us have turned to our own way. In Romans chapter 3, we get a huge list where it says there is none good, no, not one, and then it spends about eight verses, and it's not flattering. How not good are we? Let me tell you. Your, 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 your voice box, your chatter box, it's an open tomb. All that comes out of it is death. I mean, it's not flattering. Until we get to a place in verse 23 where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, and the wages of sin is death. Now, because none of us are good, that creates a problem for an infinitely good God. And so it says at the end of this verse, as a result of this, that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, even as other, the unbelievers out there, the children of disobedience that are out there, we were just like them at one point. We were children of wrath, by nature. Now, this phrase, were by nature, the word here, were, it means to exist as something. It's in the imperfect tense, which means a completed action that kept going at, and then stopped at some point. Now, why did it stop at one point? Well, you got to come back next week because that's verse 4, but God. That's why it stopped at some point. It's not because I went, you know, I am, I am not doing very well here. I must do better, and I shall do better. And so I will now direct my life toward God, and I will direct my life toward, you know, toward, uh, you know, His standards, you know. I will devote my life to Him. None of us did that. God made the first move, and He intervened, and then we responded to Him. But before we get there, we have to understand where we were. We were, for a period of time, it says, by nature, the children of wrath. Now, the word here, by nature, it comes from a root word that means to become. So the most basic way to translate this would say, and we became, you know, this, it was, it was we, by becoming the children of wrath. We, we, we were something that, that caused us to become, you know, children of, of, of wrath. It can mean form or nature, in other words, something innate, but it could also mean something that's budding, growing, or developing, I bring this up because there are those who teach that, well, God is angry with us simply because we're born from Adam's, Adam's fallen nature, that all of us are doomed to judgment simply because we possess a sin nature. But that is not a biblical idea. In Ezekiel chapter 18, 
God very clearly addresses this um, in a conversation uh, that Ezekiel is supposed to have with the people of Israel. Ezekiel 18.1, it says, the word of the Lord came unto me again. You know, in other words, he said, I got a new sermon from God. And, and, and it said this, what do you mean that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? In other words, the Lord comes to him and says, this is what I want you to tell them. What are you all talking about when we use this saying? There's a phrase you all use a lot. What do you mean by it? And the phrase is, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. <laughs> I hear that all the time, don't you? What does that mean? The, the, child, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea, and I don't know if you've ever eaten a really sour grape, but you're kind of like, I don't know if I want to eat another thing for the rest of my life, you know? That's kind of the idea here. So the concept is, well, you know, dad has eaten so many sour grapes that when the little guy pops out, you know, he's just going, I don't want to eat anything because dad ate a bunch of sour grapes. In other words, this isn't our fault. This is our father's fault. You know, God's judging us because of what our forefathers did. And God goes, what is this saying? Verse three, he says, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. I don't want to ever hear anybody say that again because it's not true. Verse four, behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul that sins it shall die. We are each individually responsible for our own judgment. We go down to Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. Yet you say, why? Does not the father or the son bear the iniquity of the father? That's what they were taught. And, and the Lord says, no. When the son has done that which is lawful and right, and he has kept all my statutes, and he's done them, he shall surely live. I don't care what his father did. I don't care how wicked he was. If he's going to walk with me, he's going to follow me, that's all that matters to me. doesn't matter what his dad did. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. If there's a, an individual who decides to walk with me and walk in righteousness, then his righteousness is upon him. But the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. If someone decides to disobey me and go their own way, that's on them. We have individual responsibility before God. Therefore, this cannot mean that we are innate children of wrath. No, we have grown, we have budded, we have developed into children of wrath by our own choice to be a child of disobedience. We have all chosen to be children of disobedience, and thereby that means we are all children of wrath. But we aren't children of wrath because, well, Adam blew it. No. This is important. I'm a child of wrath because I chose to be a child of disobedience. And so, in the same way that a child belongs to their parents, by the choice to give myself to disobedience, I become someone who belongs to God's wrath and therefore his judgment. God's wrath is God's holy anger at sin, his essential antagonism to everything evil, and it also represents his willingness to destroy it because he's good. And so we see these two ideas or these two phrases of a child of disobedience, a child of wrath. We see him again in Ephesians chapter 5. When it says, let no man, in verse 6 of chapter 5, let no man deceive you with vain words. 
For because of these things, the stuff we read already in our scripture reading, comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Those two ideas are hand in hand. It's because of these things that God's wrath comes upon the children of disobedience, unbelievers. So, the idea isn't that we just went along with the flow that unbelievers were going. We just went along with the flow that Satan, you know, was leading. We chose the same destiny at some point, all of us, in our lives. And so, it really leaves us with a super important question. Because we just read in chapter one about this awesome position we have in Christ, right? Like, we, I mean, like all those sermons, hopefully for you, they've been like awesome. Like, wow, like God did that for me? That's how I come away from reading chapter one. Now all of a sudden you're like, Paul's like, hey, let me throw a bunch of mud on that, you know? And, and you, you kind of, you wipe the mud away and you go, but this is who I am now. And it does leave the question, why and how did this become this? And that's the point of why Paul brings this up. How did those who chose a destiny of wrath become blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ? Well, it was not us who made the first move. Verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy, he has more than enough mercy because of the great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he quickened us together with Christ. Amen? And we'll look at that truth. We'll begin looking at that truth next week. But it is so important for now to remember who saved who. I did not rescue myself. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you rescued yourself. It's not because you're doing a good job. You know, you read your Bible three times this week. You went to church this Sunday and maybe last Sunday too. That is not, that's not it. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, he initiated, he gave his only begotten son. And then he made it available that whosoever should believe in him, whosoever should respond to his first move, whosoever should believe in him would not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. I was loved, you were loved by an awesome God who didn't want to pour out his wrath upon you. And so he sent his son Jesus to pay the price for your sin instead. And that's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper. That's what we're remembering. And so as the worship team comes up to lead us in song, to think about the cross, to think about what Jesus did for us, and to thank him and to worship him for that, you know, I want to encourage you, you know, it is, again, something we should not dwell on about all the things we did or where we were before Christ. But we must never forget who rescued who and what we were rescued from. And so as we sing, just tell the Lord, thank you for rescuing me from who I was. Thank you that you're the one that made the first move when you didn't have to. Thank you, Lord, for intervening in my life. And if you are here today and you're not a Christian, listen, this I understand, you know, everybody else is doing it, and the temptation is to be, well, I'll just do it too. That is not what this is. It's not just some ritual, okay? It's not just something you can show up and do. You know, when we hold this, the concept here is that we are all testifying to a couple of things. 
we hold this and then we, we open it up and we partake of the bread and we partake of the juice. We are looking around at one another and we're going, I am no better than you. And I can see you don't think you're any better than me, that we were all in the same boat, that all of us fit in Ephesians 2, 1, 3. I was Ephesians 2, 1, 3, and Jesus saved me. If that is not your testimony, then not only is this meaningless, but it's offensive to take it. It's offensive to go, yeah, me too, when you, you have never made that admission. When you still have the mindset, the mentality of, well, I actually think I'm a good person. I do good things most of the time. I'm not really bad. Even though you go after whatever you want, even if it means crossing God's boundaries, and even though you don't even live up to your own standard of being a good person. That's an insult because what you're saying is, is well, Jesus, that's really nice what you did. You know, I mean, taking the nails and the crown of thorns and dying and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't, didn't need it. I'm okay. That's what you're saying if you're taking it when you're not a believer. So my word to you this morning is this. If you're not a believer, it's not don't take it. It's while we sing, repent. While we're singing as those who are believers are thanking the Lord because they've, they've already taken that step of faith and they've, they're following Jesus, they've recognized that, that's the time for you to do the same thing. And then when the song is done, all of us can take it together with meaning. Amen? Lord, we give this time of worship to you now, of song. And Lord, you know, we long to, to truly remember what you did for us to reflect on what it cost you to rescue us, to reflect on the awful place we were, and, and Lord, the amazing love that you had that didn't leave us where we were, but intervened, but God. Lord, we thank you for that love that, that you know, invaded time and space, and you became a man, and then you paid the price for us. And Lord, for anyone right now who doesn't know you, who's wrestling with you, Lord, will you convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Lord? Will you convict them by your spirit of their need for a Savior? In Jesus' name, amen.